Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Welcome to episode 119 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Artie Shepard. Artie was in bands like Bad Trip, Mind Over Matter, World's Fastest Car, Air Type 11, Gay for Johnny Depp, Instruction, Godfire's Man, and Unwed. He's also been running a metal bar venue called St. Vitus in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, that's held some legendary shows. He's been running that since 2011. He is still playing music. He's in a band called Primitive Weapons. He's obviously, he's not giving up on his dream. Artie has seen a lot in music, and with no punches pulled in this interview, he tells it how it is. I love talking to him about music. I probably laugh more through this than any other that I've ever done. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, and thanks to everyone that picked up the book, Anthology of Emo, Volume 1, anthologyofemo.com. This is episode 119 of the Watch Chef Emo podcast with Artie Shepard. What's funny about that is that I went to Airwaves Festival in Iceland three weeks after 9-11. Really? Yeah, and got incredibly drunk on the plane <laughs> and just started throwing bottles behind us, and airplane <laughs> bottles. Because I, I was so nervous to fly. Delta 522 to... <laughs> yeah, it, dude, it was, it was such a bad scene. It was such, I was such an asshole. That, uh, me and this dude, Kevin McManus, it was really funny. And, nobody wa- and then we had to spend the entire weekend with all these people who we just pissed off on the airplane. Wow. And they'd just be like, oh, it's those dicks. And like, oh, yeah, hi. <laughs> I guess we should go to the Penis Museum in yeah. Reykjavik. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if C- CMJ happened. Uh, I'm sure it, it probably did. Because it was always an EVR showcase, and I, I have the posters, so I just can't remember if that was actually... But yeah, this one's hilarious. Where oh that's a tour, it was like they did those little like, yeah this was actually and the Strider headlined, that's what we're all wondering. I can't every time someone comes in and knows the bands they can't understand why. But I feel like it might have just been like they just listed them, and maybe they because S friends Russ or Coheed I don't know where Coheed was at that point in their career. I think that was pretty new for them. Yeah, huh? Anyway, well they're listed first here, so they definitely (laughs) opened that one. Yeah. They played my bar. They were good. <laughs> good kids. Very nice. Good kids. It's <laughs> all right. So, Artie, yes. you're here, finally. Yes, I'm here. We have randomly seen each other over the years. 
We met. I think you forgot. I, I was always like, I like to mention this. This song for Airtype 11, Better Than the Super Bowl, yes. was named at the show I was at, which I always feel really special about. I mean, that's just incredible to me. I, I, it was uh, in North Carolina. North Carolina, right? And 533 uh, Uprising. 533. An absolute shithole. <laughs> it was somebody's house. No, it was like it? it was in it was like a strip of like a like a downtown main street and it was like like there was a bucket to catch the water that was f- raining in from yeah. the leaks in the roof. Sounds and about it, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, the person who actually named it, I gave a shout out to on the album. So it was Oh, uh, you did? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, cuz ah. I used to do I used to do little commentaries. Oh it. yeah, you're right. And and I remember that show because we were, we brought our own. We would do the guided by voices thing and bring a cooler of beer and uh and we were just handing beers out to people, which we probably shouldn't have been doing now, <laughs> now that I'm a bar owner. Um, and uh, yeah, we 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 gave a shout out like in the commentaries underneath each song. I would always write like how the song was written, where the title came from, stuff you know, real emo stuff like that. Yeah, even though the stuff I wrote wasn't very emo, but that's all right. <laughs> As an old hardcore kid, come on. Well, I know. Well, we weren't very emo so, you know, <laughs> we tried. So, the were you born on Long Island? I was, yeah. I, I grew up, I lived on Long Island until I was 22. And then my parents unceremoniously said, See you later. We're leaving. <laughs> Fuck you. Get out. And I was like, all right, cool. They gave, me, they gave me till 22 to finish college. I didn't finish college. I just left and went on Where'd tour. Where'd you go? I went to Hofstra. Um, I hated college. It was boring as shit. Uh, I went to Chaminade, which was like a college prep high school on Long Island, and that is that was, where you met a lot of people? No, no, not at all. Actually, uh, uh, my metal friends, yeah, like because that's what primarily I was into in, in high school. It's, you know, I was pretty typical, like you know, metal, hardcore. You know, then Britpop came and just kind of wiped that all away. Not really wiped it away, but it's always it's always been there. I do own a metal club, but um, yeah. <laughs> I like a lot of different things. I like music, yeah. In general. But then early on, like, were you playing? Were you? Did you pick? Did you find the guitar yet? Like, when did that? Like, singing, yeah, I started all that playing. Stuff? I started playing. My mom had a guitar, and she was left-handed, and I was left-handed. Um, so it was easy for me to just pick up and start playing. And I would learn like little chord stuff. I started writing almost the second I picked up a guitar. Um, I was never very good at playing cover songs, so I would just write my own stuff. And I think that's pretty typical of a lot of. Uh, punk and hardcore dudes like they just you know they're not Eddie, they're not playing Van Halen songs they're kind of just like hey this sounds pretty cool I like the way this sounds it's you know? almost like they're too I don't know my brain was always like I don't want to learn that song I want to learn mine right yeah and it's and it's there's something rewarding about finishing a song and and all that but yeah I played in metal cover bands uh, there's actually stuff online of us playing in 1988 I was 15 that's um, really funny and uh, then I had back surgery. I was like a, I was a, a bit of a jock, not a jock, but like I mean, I was. They called me the devil worshiper on the baseball team. It was like with my <laughs> what was your position? The legacy. I played center field, um, but I mostly sat on the bench because I was like a super all star, little league player, and then the field got big and I didn't. And <laughs> I didn't hit puberty till I was about sixteen, so I was four foot eleven when I got into high school. Holy shit! And when I tried out for the team, it was just like. This kid can't hit it past the pitcher, you know, and it, and I went from like throwing the equivalent of like eighty five miles an hour to holy shit, this is big, and and uh, so I never really caught up. And then my bat, I had a tumor on my spine, which I had to have removed, which 
In high school. Yeah, which the positive part of that was I never had to take gym again. So I had like five, ex- six extra study halls a week or something, which was awesome because I would rad. get all my homework done. Yeah. And then I'd have all my free time afterwards, which was, it was really a blessing. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah, Long Island, like, you know, I, I guess it was around the, I was going to a club called Sundance a lot. It was in Bayshore, which is, uh, was sort of the Long Island equivalent of Lemoore's. Um, which is another famous metal club, except it was a lot smaller because Long Island's more of a secondary market. And um, basically, I met a lot of people there. So I met Ed Reyes. I met Ed Reyes and Scott Martin. Um, Scott was Scott might not be familiar to everybody, but he plays in Silent Majority when they do play. And he was in... Uh, he's in Greensleep. Uh, but he was in Aerotype on the first record. Um, and he was really young, but I, anyway, I met I met Scott through a mutual friend, and then Scott introduced me to Ed and uh, General George, who was a singer clockwise. Um, and we were probably fourteen when we met, and we used to go we used to go to Sunrise Mall with a boombox and like listen to no way sick metal, and, and like you know it would be. How so did you f- first meet though? Was it at a show? Was it like you no, saw no, a t shirt? It was just mutual friends. Yeah, it was like Scott just introduced me to Ed because um, Scott knew how, how like how into. I was really into underground stuff like Merciful Fate and, and Voivod and, and, you know, like, and I'm always, I've always been like a searcher of music. Like I just wanted heavier and faster and heavier and faster. And he introduced me to Ed. We all hung out one night. Uh, Paul Brinkman as well, the original bass player of Sound Majority. Um, and we just started hanging out a lot, like a lot. And it was, it was super fun. And we would go to shows and we'd go to Sundance and, and, uh, we one day we decided we wanted to start a band and we're like yeah let's do it man yeah we play guitar and i fucking sucked and ed, ed kind of sucked too and it was like yeah sure whatever and we handed out flyers at sundance at the show and we got a call from john lafada who later became the drummer of mind over matter and neglect and uh mad ball and sure terry's been in um he was Really fucking young. I think he was 13. Wow. And he, we tried out this, then we started trying vocalists. And the first time we went to John's basement, like the, there was this whole group of kids from Lindenhurst uh, that were hanging out all the time. And it was George Reynolds, um, uh, Artie Philly, uh, just like uh, all the Sound Majority kids eventually. They were, they were super young too. And um, we tried out this kid, Mike Richardson. He didn't work out. Then we tried out George. And he worked out, and we sort of solidified the lineup at that point until we threw Ed out. And that was Mind Over Matter, or was that with Bad Trip? That was Mind Over Matter. I wasn't in Bad Trip until uh, a little bit later. Um, I missed all the youth crew stuff, and I probably wouldn't have joined the band. That's what I'm saying. You probably wouldn't. Yeah, not my thing at all. (laughs) I think it's stupid. (laughs) I think it's stupid now. I think it's stupid then, but whatever. Teach his own. I don't really care. Do what you want. Come play my club. It's cool. No one's going to drink anyway. No one's going to drink. Although the last judge show did really well, I was happy with that. Um, <laughs> That's like a whole. <laughs> you could do a whole like, uh, uh, how much alcohol was sold for what strange band? Oh yeah, band no, the judge. Like, uh, the, no, H two O was the worst. We did five nights of H two O, and it was like we shouldn't even open the bar. It was pointless. I was like, really? Like these guys walk with this much money, and we made nothing, and like. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I love you. I love all the guys in the vet. Like that's the thing is, I'm friends with all these people for years. So 
I love it. It's great. And, and you know, they, they don't have to love my band. I don't have to love their bands. I just love them as people. I love them part of the community and the scene. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, like, I, I, like my favorite band ever is Yes. So you can't expect me to sit there and listen to like a youth crew song and think that it's interesting, you know, but I will support what you believe in. And I'm, you know, and I, I get the art in what you're doing. It's just different than the art yeah. that I love. So that's all. Um, <laughs> but mine over matter. I mean, I grew up in Vermont and that was in high school around that time. Yeah. And that you heard that name. Well, like we played it was up there a lot, but I'm saying like, that's, that was rad. Like to, it was it was something I was hearing that was not from my town. It wasn't in the dumb Metal Maniacs magazine or whatever. And it was like it was that same thing about I don't know anything about them. And you had to like go search. You had to go ask the older guy at the show who were they. Or, Wait, who's that? Who's the guy from Burlington, Vermont? Uh, the older guy. That, yeah, yeah. at every show. Youth of Today manager. Um, oh my God, Sammy! Sammy Siegel did the best imitation of him. You would do the Killing Time tour. I don't know who that is. Oh fuck! What's his name? He managed you to today. Really? He's I from swear. Vermont. I swear. Yeah, he's from Burlington, Burlington, Vermont. Yeah, he was. Uh, I think he was a tr- he was a crossdresser, and he was in the military. Did he go uh, to two four two? Did he go to the show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. I wish I could text my gaddy right now. Really. <laughs> I, I, I could. Uh, oh, oh, it's gonna come to me. It's gonna come to me at some point. I was just gonna text Sam and ask him. <laughs> We'll edit it in the Oh later. my god, it's so fucking funny. Anyway. Um, but that same thing of that search and discovery, you know, finding other people like that. It's like when you meet someone and they mention four bands, instantly I can tell if I'm going to be down because it's not them mentioning something that's on the radio. Right. Well, I mean, you know, up until Nirvana hit, that was the way it was. And once Nirvana hit, then everything changed. It was like, you know, we went from playing... I, I remember very vividly this experience of another i don't think artie philly will remember artie white now um will remember that he always denies that he said it but he did say it and we had it was like our first seven inch came out around right around after nirvana hit and like all these alternative dance nights started popping up and that was where we like we had been doing shows in bars and during the day and shit like that on long island tyler king would do them and whatnot and it was it was cool and and the it was fun but there was probably 20 people the same 20 people for years it, like people like scott weingard um uh, uh, uh norm arenas um they were all from long island and they would go to shows those guys were a little bit more worldly than us um <laughs> but uh but yeah like so all of a sudden this happens we had our record release show for the first mind of a matter seven inch which i can't possibly listen to and it's uh and we were like really i remember I remember getting going to Wreckage Records when they signed us, and it was like Ed was still in the band. And I remember walking outside; it was they had this beautiful office in West Broadway, and I was like, "Guys, anything we write from here on out is going to be put out on record. That's incredible." And you know what? For for me, actually, for most of us, I was right. <laughs> I don't think any of us ever did a demo again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then then. Uh, uh, that happened. There, there was, we had our seven-inch record release at the Angle in Mineola, and 400 people showed up, and we were like, "What the fuck?" And it was really the beginning of the sort of like explosion of Long Island hardcore because we we really wanted to create a scene that was dip- we 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 were sick of the shit that was going on in the city. They they didn't respect us, you know. And eventually they did because they had to. They had to, yeah. But like. <laughs> 
but that was the thing is that like once the angle started and Artie was booking all these shows and we lived together so I was like sort of involved and we booked the souls and we booked a uh, uh, shift and we booked like like there was this whole coming together of those two scenes that happened over the next couple of years and it was really we booked life of agony we booked like it was really eclectic we'd have neglect and garden variety on the same show which I loved we loved doing that shit it was but so much that, fun I love talking about that thing of you see the show flyers. And even, you know, I remember seeing one, this is later, but it was like, Snapcase, Dashboard Confessional. And it was like, that, well, because they were from I the remember when Dashboard milk. was doing all those that, that stuff, and it was, uh, at the time, I thought it was a really smart marketing move, because he stuck out so much. You know, and, and, and there were a lot of girls in the scene, too. And, and frankly, you know, it's hard for me to believe, like, that there's, that there was 300 girls that were like, I love Converge, you know, like, I... And that's not me being sexist. Maybe that's just me talking from my time period because I see lots of girls. My business, I can actually see from the exactly. analytics what my, my exactly. business does. You have it's everyone like 70% guys and 30% girls. The Bouncing Souls taught me the best lesson in the world. I remember they played The Angle the first time and there were fucking more than 50% girls there. Really? And, and, I, and the guys were like, you could just see the guys like, wow. I was like, so wait. If we, girls come, that means more guys will come. Like this is great. These guys are geniuses. And it wasn't they weren't it was just the style of music they played. They changed a lot from that time, but but and and just the people that they were and it was like I, I think people a lot of people were just discovering that style of music at that time. It was like all the guidettes with the hair straight up, all of a sudden their hair was down and they were going to Lollapalooza. And then slowly but surely, you know, they they ventured into our scene and it was like it was really a cool uh, eclectic group of people and the music to me more than anything the music was fucking great and that was like that was the one thing that I think Mind Over Matter was able to offer um, was a band that was sort of like by the time we got to on even Security is a weird record but by the time we got to Automipulation which was the last record we did we weren't even remotely a hardcore band I mean we were it was such a mixture of stuff that you couldn't really pinned down what it was but we were considered a hardcore band people called us progressive hardcore same thing they did for burn yeah but once you call something progressive hardcore it's not hardcore anymore Madball is hardcore that's always going to be hardcore you know and, and like that's not like i got really into songwriting and i got really into like george didn't scream and it, which was really separated us a lot and at the time it was hard for us to get accepted amongst the resurrections and the snap cases and all that stuff i uh, uh, but it was it was cool, and that I mean, you know, hopefully when the documentary comes out, which should be relatively soon, people will be able to see what it was like. It was, it was really wild, and in it, man, when after Modern Matter broke up, and I moved to Queens and joined World's Fastest Car with Walter, like uh, the the PWAC opened towards the end. I guess it, it was probably open for about well, a yeah, year. When did that open? I think in ninety five, ninety four. Okay. No, like I quit. I quit Modern Matter ninety five, and. The PUAC opened, I think, in 94. But, like, shit just went through the roof at that point. And the bands got really good. Ron was like, showing me some of the mutual friend, Ron Richards. He was showing me some flyers today. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hadn't seen any of them. It was unreal. Like, the, everyone on the show was like, every, they were like huge bands. Yeah, well, what, was, what began to happen, because there was no place to play in the city, 
bands were coming out to Long Island because there was a scene. And I think do you think that, that, that helped? The, there was a shift. progress Long Island even more because of the void with them not being able to play yeah, the city. Absolutely, they're playing Long Island now, and you're getting exposed to more. Well, you're going to get you're ex- exposed to more people. Like it, there was a shift of hardcore, <laughs> not just shift behind you. <laughs> there was a shift of hardcore <laughs> from the city to the suburbs, and <clears throat> that's really the the sort of like core of emo. Honestly, was was that shift? Is all those bands? All those bands are they're all from the suburbs, you know, uh, or up, upstate of the Midwest. You know, I think the Midwest had a huge influence, especially like Midwest indie rock, which people would call emo. Uh, who the fuck knows? It's such a weird term, but the um, yeah, it was uh, you you could see it happening, and you know, bands like Earth Crisis or even Shelter, like you know, you, you'd go to you'd go play in Albany after. After uh, Shelter had been there and everybody's wearing Krishna beads for a week. You'd go uh, to down south after Earth Crisis there and everybody's a vegan for two weeks. You know, it was in, like in Windbreakers. Yeah, in Windbreakers. Yeah. <laughs> or Hatebreed played and everybody's in basketball shorts. Yeah. It was, <laughs> you know, it, but it was cool. And, and, and there, was, there was a really, we had, Long Island had really strong connections with certain places. Uh, um, north Carolina, we had a really strong connections with. Um, and, uh, why yeah, was like, that? Do you know? Because that's uh, where I went to end up going to school. Well, in Winston Salem, um, there was Big Dave's Club, and we just like the bands would just go back and forth. It was like a thing. Like Code Seven would come and play Long Island, and like that was the other thing is that we had the ability to trade. I mean, the fucking bands that played on Long Island, like ap- even after the PWAC at Deja One and whatnot, it, it's incredible. You know, like bands that got huge. A Dillinger, first time they played, I forget what fucking year it was. I mean. They just sold out Terminal 5 in about a minute, you know? I mean, granted, it's their last show, but... But still. I, know, I wish I was playing it. I doubt. <laughs> we just toured England with them. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it was an interesting time. And but because of the... I love that time period because I think for us, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have things quick sometimes. And then all of a sudden, things are starting to speed up. We got email. We check it more than once a day. We're well, the message cell boards, phones, the message boards, message boards, boards the first Bridge Nine, Trust Kill. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, those are the time, days of fanzines too, which were you know a lifeline, honestly. And uh, me and Artie did a fanzine. We did a radio show together. Like we were kind of, and he booked all the shows on Long Island, so we were kind of like filtering through things. Yeah, you know? and also playing things that we wanted people to get into. Like we didn't, we purposely wouldn't play like Twenty Five to Life. You know what I mean? Like. But playing break. that different stuff, like you said about the shows, exposing people, because most times someone's going to a show, they're not just into Madball. They actually like other things. Absolutely. Or- well, they're music fans. Anybody who gets into, I mean, the, the Marcy Smith's thing is the biggest example of that. You know, I, I, Wait, any, what does that explain that? Well, uh, how weird is it? You know, like, I mean, I know it was a certain, like, you know, Walter has, Wally has a lot to do with it, you know, and, and, and whatnot. And the, even the Bad Trip guys who saw the smiths really early on oh yes yes, yes. <laughs> um like they uh, quicksand covering how soon is now really changed the game for a lot of people it made it okay quicksand in general just changed the game but um but it, it was like it very much so there there was an outsider idea and a, a music nerd idea you know what i mean like if you were into hardcore you were really into music you had to be. It's the only way you knew about it. You couldn't just do a quick search. No. You had to really be into it. You had to do your research. You had to like 
like, like and do a lot of legwork, go to shows, go to fucking see distros, all this yeah, shit. Go to, go to record stores in the city because at the time that was really, you know, the only option to find certain things. And, uh, you know, it, it was fucking loony too. I remember the first time. All right. So my first show with Bad Trip was the first Dayton Straight Edge Fest. And I forget. I'm sure it's changed names over the years and whatnot. And I remember we, we hit Black Ice and almost died in Pennsylvania. It was a whole fucking thing. I drank for about 18 hours before getting there, and which was pretty typical of me. And I got out stinking of booze, and I walk into this place, and it's like 600 fucking kids. And like half of them are wearing their straight edge varsity jackets and everybody's selling their merch. And like the first band on that day was Lincoln. Oh, wow. You know, like, and, and like it was Lincoln and uh, what's the band? They Hoover. Um, Holy shit. Avail. Yeah, I have the flyer on my la- It's on my laptop. But um, uh, and the night show was like Fountainhead and Into Another and Res- uh, Resurrection. Um, Earth Crisis was the first band on at the night show. But, and people were throwing hamburgers at them. That shows you how the scene changed after them. And it was like really Snapcase played, I believe. Um, it was just eye-opening. You know, it, I, hadn't, I had toured in Europe a bunch, but I hadn't done a lot of American touring. And I was like, wow, this is fucking crazy like these like and you know there were bands like that were sort of changing like lincoln uh, i mean unfortunately now i listen to it and i'm like this guy can't sing to save his fucking life but neither could most of the emo band singers but like you could really hear things starting to change lifetime played um uh you could hear things starting to change and like there was the really really heavy but there was also this m- melody rolling in and i always say the emo was a bunch of hardcore kids trying to play rock who couldn't sing and couldn't write songs. And, you know, eventually some of them got really good. That's why it took so long for it to kind of go to a more of a mainstream idea. But they were playing stuff that was melodic enough to be mainstream. It just wasn't executed properly, you know? Yeah, I know. It takes that first few bands to do it, and then the other people watch them, and then they kind of improve on it and keep going. Right, and then we get into the world of hot water music, and then that takes us to Take Mac Sunday. And that is where... You know, which also basically. is the connection with North Carolina. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. And, yeah obviously. But Take a Mac Sunday took what Hot Water Music was doing and did it in a more of a radio rock way. And their timing was perfect. You know, so like it's it's interesting. Like they, people talk about like at the time as well as, you know, like all these bands are getting signed from Long Island. Is there a Long Island sound? I was like, yeah, there is actually the Long Island sound. But <laughs> but no, there isn't. It's every band is every band is Sorry, different. That was funny. <laughs> every band is different, you know, and every band, you know, that weren't taking back Sunday clones, you know, like Bayside to me didn't sound like that or like like something from Modern Ashes didn't sound like that. Like, like every band was a sound majority was basically where they were all getting it from. And no one fucking so, heard Silent Majority. I hear so the, much from Silent Majority from all those bands. Oh yeah, like you just Glassjaw. I mean, you just feel it in it. Yeah, Glassjaw is a good example of that. You know, like uh, Daryl's vocal style was very much Tommy Cargan meets HR meets Chino. You know, it's uh, he's an incredible talent, like ridiculously talented human. Um, the whole band was is I don't know who's in it anymore, but um, but yeah, it's like it's really so being there in long island seeing more people come to shows i fucked off in 1995 you you were gone for like two years right no i was gone period i moved i moved from queens to manhattan to brooklyn and then i was i never went back i would go back for shows i you know i went back to see fugazi i went back for a couple of um things that had happened but for the most part i was a city kid at that point and i was working at a record store on bleaker street called rebel rebel um and this is when Airtype 11 started 
and we, you know, I basically, I, I then got hired at a stock photography agency called Photonica, um, and quit to go on tour and basically just lived off of, uh, off of, I don't know. My rent was so cheap. We all lived together and my rent was super cheap and I just was like dicking around. Honestly, I should have been doing something. I should have think, been thinking about my future, but <clears throat> I was really living in the moment and enjoying it. And, and I really truly believe that that band was writing songs that were way superior to any of the bands that we played in, played with, and you know, that were way more popular than us. So, you know, I, what I missed was that those bands were making a connection that I wasn't making with, with people. And, and uh, I can only say that in hindsight, you know, uh, but I used to say, uh, what do you just feel bad for him? Cause the guy can't sing like what? <laughs> Is that why you buy the records? I'm, yeah. I'm so confused. Do you but, look cute? <laughs> but it was a, that was douchey, you know, it's like, but I also like on those first couple of tours, I would, it worked in New York. I would be a dick on stage, a total fucking like say like really sarcastic shit. And it worked here. You know, we would sell out shows. People fucking loved us. I'd go someplace else and they fucking hated me. Like I was the plague. And eventually, our, you know, the rest of the band would just be like, dude, you have to say that stuff on stage. And I'm fucking 12 beers in <laughs> on yeah. stage wondering what the fuck I'm doing in a basement in Rapids City, South Dakota. <laughs> going like, I was like, I thought these songs were better than this shit. You know, <clears throat> I did it anyway. This is great. So we played in Lubbock, Texas. All right. And was, was this the a, first record for Airtype or second? Yes, I think. No, it had to have been amplified. Do you know what's funny about the first record? I got it in the mail at the radio station. Didn't know anything. Put it on, and it was one of my first memories at that station, like liking a record. Like Usually I needed to like hear somebody tell me something. But I put it on, and I was like, holy shit. Self-discovery. Beautiful. Yeah, but, but then it was like some records had a cool logo. I knew it had yeah. connection to the... But it was a it was fun that I think I don't know that that moment of getting it. I'm glad to know you got it. That's nice to know because we went on tour and no one had it. No, the CD company that printed the CDs printed a breast cancer awareness CD-ROM on the actual CDs. So we had sold who knows how many because they're on the in road. the fo- they're in the plastic, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and they're fucking they, people didn't actually get to hear the music. Wow, yeah, it was fucking great. I think I think some actually wound up suing the the manufacturers, but like it, it felt like I was like, wow, I just spent like you know a whole six months touring and not working, and, and, like, and it was a wrong. fucking total waste of my time. Wow. Sweet. Um, so Lubbock, Texas. Oh uh, yeah, I don't even know if I want to tell this story, but <laughs> I, I this guy wanted to do a shot to shot contest with me, and he wound up passing out and throwing up, and then. Somebody in our crew tried to escort his wife to the van, and then I got blamed for it. And our oh booking agent at the time was Imakai's sister, Amanda. How did that happen? She booked bands. Really? Yeah. And and uh, and like was it the, through the connection with some records? No, I for, I honestly can't remember how yeah. it all came. Cool. We did stay with her one night, um, and she's got all of test pressings of the Discord records. Wow. We were like, wow. It's <laughs> like, should we just take them and run? <laughs> It was pretty fucking cool. Um, yeah, and she wound up dropping us because the, like these incidents kept happening with a fucking roadie. But think about <laughs> if that was now with like I got social. blamed for everything. Oh, that was the thing. It's like fucking yeah. It, these kids would write these fanzines and be like, oh, the, the, and I'd be like, listen, just because like I say wise ass shit on stage doesn't mean like we we asshole. do dishes and fold clothes, man. You know, like I, we we were incredibly respectful. To if you're opening up your house to us, like kidding me, and I don't know why every 
fucking kid we stayed with had a hot tub. Really? Yeah. Like we stayed with this one kid. I fucking can't remember where it was. He had like taxidermy. His parents like were big game hunters. It was like taxidermy, but a like, hot tub. You know, in a fucking like case with like, in a, a huge hot. It was fucking weird. So weird. Anyway, <laughs> they have they have more room for things down in the south. They do. The yeah. Every, actually, everywhere but where we live. Yeah. <laughs> where we live, you got to work twice as hard and have less quarters of as much. Anyway. <laughs> But yeah, so so I mean that's that's cool to hear that that you had that discovery. That makes me feel good about that time because it, it was I probably hard. went to that first show. I probably whatever that first one was. It would that Big Dave spot. Um, I can't remember which show we played, but I mean, yeah, I'm it was, sure it was five thirty three. But those, I I just I miss like I didn't know what you looked like. I just knew like how you sounded. Right. So I loved the going somewhere and not knowing something yeah and that's what i miss now like i mean if i'm going to your your venue or something or i'm i'm gonna look up the band listen to them watch a youtube video it's like i'm already have a notion before i go and then that's i miss that about discovery about maybe i had randomly met you but we're not gonna see i didn't we didn't exchange numbers i didn't find you on facebook right after uh maybe it was a letter yeah, and I I know that sounds like I sound old, but there was a sense of there was patience, or well, that's, I guess uh, Kevin Lyman, Kevin Lyman, <laughs> but more of the I, I had a moment to think, and I, I I was listening to your record, and I remember that last song, the one that's like twenty minutes, where it's like oh, it's got all the space, yeah. Between. But fr, fr, is it Frop P or Frop P? Yeah, like that's a fucking great song. Like I don't think I would listen to that as much now if I was streaming. I don't know. I just feel like that. It's so funny. In the digital age, that song is super annoying <clears throat> because it's got all that space. In yeah. And then all of a sudden there's that other <laughs> there's shit. There's a rap. And yeah. I think it's Mike Gitter, the A&R guy from, who signed Jawbox singing Static, yeah. which was great. <laughs> that was super fun. Um, but that, uh, like, you know, you guys are, uh, you've got MapQuest directions printed out or whatever that is, like those kind of, or you got a map out. I that was the crazy part about, about touring places like, uh, in Europe in like 1992, 93, 94, uh, you just like, it was so odd to me to be like 19 years old. The first time I went over was with Bad Trip and, and I was like, wow, we got out of the, you know, got out of the plane and somebody came to pick us up. We were four hours late for the first show and all the kids stayed till 2am to watch us. And, and, uh, it's like, you know, anything could happen to us. Like it might've matter had a fucking shotgun pulled on us in East Germany because there were these neo-Nazi guys who were pissed off at the driver for driving Americans around. And they were talking in German, and, and, and the driver just turned to me, and he's like, get in the fucking van now. And I was like, guys, we got to go. And Artie, and Artie, and, uh, cause Artie toured with us all the time. And Artie and John Lafada, and like, they're like, like, everybody's drunk and having fun. And he's like, get in the van now. And, <clears throat> and I was like, guys, let's go, let's go, let's go. Otto's pissed, like something's wrong. So we get in the van, and I see the guy go to his trunk, he opens up his trunk and he starts pulling out a gun. <laughs> and Artie and John had gotten these stupid switchblades because they were legal there. <laughs> and they're going, fuck you, Nazi. Like hanging out the door like with his switchblades. And Otto's like putting the car in gear like, fucking leaving now. We're leaving now. <laughs> he, he was completely freaking out. And we just pulled away and the guy's pulling out his gun. We were like, what? he's like, I don't know if they're going to follow us or not. Like, and then he started telling us what they were saying. And like just experiences like that were, were so fucking crazy. Like, like, man, did that just happen? Like playing a weird basement in Prague, you know, like all these like, and John, John was probably 17, you know, like, like 
played we played this airport hangar in Florence, Italy that was just fucking insane. Like I, I they were building a stage because Fugazi was coming. Was like, yes, wow. Fugazi. Oh, actually, no one spoke English. They took us around Florence. But uh, like do, those experiences were priceless. And we thought like, you know, and I've been told this by like the Sound Majority guys or like, other people like we were the first band really to go and do that from Long Island. And they're like, we, you guys showed us that it was possible to leave here. And, and I was like, dude, the, the, the idea that I could fly to another country and have people come and see my band is fucking mind boggling. Like that was back then. Now it's like, that's what I'm getting at. Like you, there's, you're there's so much somewhere. noise. It's actually harder. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're going all this distance and there's a kid there that knows every word. It's fucking nuts. It's in a crazy, how did that happen? Crazy experience. Like I, so this is another one. So when I was in world's fastest car, which most people don't know what that is, but when quicksand, quicksand broke up and Walter had asked me before they broke up that, um, uh, I was the only person that knew they were going to break up. Um, that he asked me to play in a band with him and and he had his deal with island def jam and i was like yeah this is, man what the fuck of course yeah, yeah. i broke up mind over matter and uh the, the i mean that's that's a, another podcast in itself even though it was only like a year and a half but we went to japan and we we were in osaka we flew in osaka and we had a like we were supposed to sign do this signing thing um in this record store so i go to the record store and the manager of the record store hands me Mind Over Matters Audio Manipulation. He goes, favorite record. Can you sign? And I'm like, what? What the In fuck? In Japan. Man? Yeah. I was like, I've been here for like 10 hours, less than that. And There's <laughs> this someone. just happened. You know, that, that blew my fucking mind. It blew my mind. <clears throat> and like, you know, you take those experiences into <clears> – I've played Donington main stage. You know what I mean? Like I've done some crazy shit for – for you know a guy who most people don't know and and it's like like i that always sits in the back of my mind you know like like to try and appreciate what's going on in front of you to be in that moment and just be like this is nuts this is absolutely nuts so when i came off as arrogant with aerotype it was all kind of an act it was all kind of stupid like you know i was really into oasis and and i always thought that that i was like oh i really want people to remember us you know, and like what I wasn't getting is that they should have remembered us for the music and instead they remembered just who that, hey, that band's pretty good, but that guy's an asshole. That was like the quote. I think I remember the Mercury Lounge showcase. I can't remember if that was Airtype or Instruction. Uh, did Pilot to Gunner play? Yes. Yeah, that was Instruction. Okay. Yeah. That was when we first got signed to Geffen. Yeah, I mean, you, were, you were funny at that show. <laughs> I wasn't drinking. We, we, had, we had a thing at that point where we, we because they wanted to keep me under you know in in control because we were now in this professional situation like everybody had an agreement that no one no one drank before we went on oh, stage wow. that was the deal and uh <clears throat> so i was very uh I, I was i was lucid i wasn't just being a drunk asshole <laughs> i was just an asshole but uh well i was sorry I, I, we, we, sk- we skipped ahead but i thought the airtype 11 stuff you really took a swing you know those those that amplified to rock record like those that was a swing. I like the cranky P and I like the game face split. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the, like we, it wasn't, it wasn't until after Amplified that we, that the major started sniffing around and there's probably 15 unreleased songs, which I think I'm going to get up on, on Spotify soon. Um, cause we're thinking about doing a show at the end of the year and Adam was like, I think, you know, let's do these, let's put these songs out. 
And I was like, all right, cool. And I listened to him and I was like, eh, I don't know. A lot of them are just demos. We, we had every big producer produce demos for us. Wow. It was like, it was a whole thing. It was, I mean, and you have the rights for them. I don't know who has the fucking rights, but sue me. I don't give a shit. What do yeah, you, no how much money are you going to make? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, the, no, I mean, Atlantic label guy paid, popped paid in. for some of them. Like there was, a, there was a quite a bit. I mean, yeah, Atlantic has paid for a couple of my demos actually. <laughs> they did a Godfather's man demo too. Um, and, uh, and then gave it to us, which was super nice. But yeah, um, it, it's, uh, I, I didn't feel like basically what was happening was I, people kept saying like the major started sniffing around and I really felt like my voice was more suited to modern rock radio and at the time. And I was just like, things had just changed. We went on, we toured on the first album cycle of, of the self-titled Aerotype record, and my voice completely changed over that time because, you know, you play in basements and VFW halls night after night for that long. Your voice is getting, it was the first band I ever sang in, and, well, besides the covers band. And my voice just got really gruff because I had to fucking scream over loud guitars and, and there were no PS. monitors, yeah. you know, it was just like, it, it was ridiculous. So like through that time, my voice really changed. We got to Amplified and they put a mic on me and it was like, who the fuck is this guy? And John Agnello, who did that record, he had this outboard gear that was like an automatic double track machine. And he actually taught me how to double my vocals really, really well. And and uh, he just had this, it wasn't an automatic double tra- track machine. He had this EQ outboard gear that just fucking loved my voice. It sounded so warm and so good. So, and we were also layering and doing all the stuff that I had never done before. And he taught me how to do all this shit. And my, I have a really diverse voice. I can do a lot of different stuff. And, and so it got to the point where it was like, you know, the indie kids don't like us. You know, like they just, because we don't sound like an indie band. But the majors won't sign us because they think we're an indie band. You know what I mean? So it, it was really strange. And, and eventually, you know, Phil, our, our guitar player, quit um, after making, you know, eight billion demos. And I was lucky enough that my roommate at the time was, um, he was the head engineer at the Magic Shop. So we were getting in oh, wow. Magic Shop all the time to record. And um, like on off hours for really cheap. And um, so Juan Garcia, he did, him and General George did a couple of majority records and brand new, uh, some some take back Sunday. Anyway, so he, uh, I, Phil quit because he just wanted to get a job and get married. He had fallen in love. He was over it. And we took like a week and we were like, you know, let's keep going. And also we had all these unreleased songs and I was like, well, we can try and shop some of this stuff. But you know, I had this crazy idea that if we, if Aerotype 11 just changed their name, we would get a record deal really? immediately. Lo and behold, Tom joined the band, and uh, we decided to go to England. We had we had toured as Aerotype in England, and we opened for a band called Hundred Reasons and a band called Hells for Heroes. And while we were on that tour, I love Hundred Reasons. Hundred Reasons blew up. Like they were making, we were going to play bigger venues because they were selling so many wow. tickets. They were in the top ten, and I had met them because they recorded at Magic Shop, and they were fans of Aerotype. And their management called us and were like, "Hey, could you go show these guys around New York?" So we became friends. A band dropped off that tour. They invited us over. We did that tour. We made friends with their management in England, and it came back around where I was like, "I got this band instruction." I was like, "Well, Hundred Reasons is going to play the Underworld, which was a really big underplay for them for Christmas for a Christmas show." And like, do you guys want to do this? And he's like, you got to pay your own way. You know, like I, 
I will guarantee that like their booking agent and all these people are going to be there. Kerrang will be there. They'll review the show. Like maybe it'll be a good jumping off point for this new band you got. I'm like, all right, cool. So I put all fucking plane tickets on my on my credit card, and we go over to England and we play this show at the Underworld, and it was fucking awesome. And next thing you know, I, I get home and I get a call. Hey, you guys want to tour with Hell's for Heroes in January? Yeah, of course we want to tour with Hell's for Heroes. Now they're starting to blow up. And the, you know, it was still like, it was mid-level venues, but fucking killer. And we're in England, which is like, you know, I'm a huge Anglophile. I'm like in heaven. And at that point, like we came back from the tour, we sold 3,000 EPs. Wow. In three weeks, just on the tour. That was instruction, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and uh, we had printed them ourselves and we sold them at the shows and we would sell them personally. We'd like stand at the door and be like, hey, three pounds. It was really cheap. That was the the idea I was like well it only cost us like a pound to make so three pounds whatever we make a couple of bucks we actually made our money back wow. from that tour I remember splitting up money with Adam because he had paid for some of it and and uh and then we got home and they were like hey you want to go on tour with for a friend at this time now granted like I'm still working at a, a stock photography agency called Photonica which has an office in London so we would stay in Kingston and we would like the we'd, you'd go and play and the bands always wanted to go home after so we'd go back to Kingston after each show I'd go to King's Cross work for the morning then go and play the show and it was fucking Looney Tunes wow <laughs> but I wanted to keep my job yeah. at least for that time and I remember being at work we got back from that tour and then Kerrang wanted to interview us and I did this interview where I said and uh, Ashley Bird who was the editor at the time's biggest Glassjaw fan on the planet so he was like really interested in anything that Long Island oriented yeah. And he interviewed me, and I said, "I quote the quote was, uh, we've only been a band for three months, but we're already better than 99.9% of the bands out there. And of course, we were, because we were basically, had been a band for seven years. <laughs> we just had one changed member, you know? And I mean, different drummers, whatnot, but um, Adam and I were still the core. And it was like, you know, and that was like the quote, you know, oh, they love no, that shit. Of course, about. yeah. And, and so at that point, I realized, oh, if I just say crazy shit, they'll print it. We go back, we do this Funeral for a Friend tour. I, I think I, at some point we did a headlining show at the Underworld. And this is mid-2000s. This is 2002. And there was a picture on the inside, a full-page picture on the inside of Krang of me jumping off a bass drum. And, and I'm wearing like my Merciful Fate shirt and like I got my pants. I, had, I was so fucking poor. I had no clothes. Like my shoes were duct taped. My pants were ripped like this. Like, so in the picture you can see me coming off and like my fucking underwear is hanging out. <laughs> and it was like... Yeah, it was it was crazy, but we knew something was going on, and we went back. We did that funeral for a friend tour, um, and then we got booked on Download Festival first year on the main stage. We were like, "What the fuck?" We had never done anything close to a festival, let alone a European festival. And we got booked on Reading and Leeds, which was a huge deal. In the meantime, the I think Download Festival was right after, right before we got booked on a tour of Biffy Clyro, who are now huge. massive, and <laughs> at the time. I think that that whole tour we played to like 50 to 100 people a night and they were fucking incredible life-changing band at the time they were way proggy and weird they're very like they still are sort of but they're like a England's Foo Fighters now um, and we would watch them soundcheck every day they would jam for like an hour or two and it was fucking mind-boggling how good this band was and they were super young and we were like wow this is, I mean we just thought we were going and we were this is gonna be it and and then we did we did main stage at Download, which was uh, hundred thousand people, which was it, just a crazy day. Like we played a little tiny club the night before, 
We slept on our drum tech's mom's floor. We got in to Donington at like 9 a.m. We did sound check. And it was this huge open field, this massive stage. Iron Maiden was the band that was on la- on that stage the night before, which was so sick. Wow. I was like, oh, my God, the tape's still here. The sound- oh, my God. I was freaking out. <laughs> and, uh, and we played this fucking crazy show. And we got off stage. And we went. <laughs> I went to the canteen, the cafeteria. And I was sitting next to Billy Corgan because Juan played. And so I was like, you know, I was just a pig and shit. And I'm just like down in beers. I'm like, fucking I must have drank like six tall boys, no food, in like a half an hour. All of a sudden, we get a phone call from our booking agent. He's like, hey, um, this band Chevelle, you guys know these guys? I was like, yeah, they, they were, you know, whatever. Our, <coughs> we eventually had their management, Bill McGathy, but at the time, we didn't have any management or anything uh, in America. And they're like, this band Chevelle didn't make their flight. Um, do you guys want to play again? You're on in 10 minutes. What? And this was on the second stage. So I go to the second stage, and we were supposed to use Flogging Molly's gear. Apparently, this was worked out, so we didn't bring any gear with us, except for our guitars and cables and shit. So same festival. Same festival. Different stage. A couple out, like maybe two hours later. And we were like, I get on, I, you know, I'm like, we walk up to Flogging Molly's crew just taking the shit off. I'm like, well, uh, guys, we got to use the stuff. We were told, like, no, you're not. And they fuck off. Fuck you, Flogging Molly. And you suck anyway. And, <laughs> and, uh, and fucking... Um, so we have to get the gear over and it was like it was a mat it was like mud everywhere we get the gear on stage really quick we go hey what's up we're, we're instructions just to say we're at Temple 11 <laughs> hey we're instruction you know uh, you know this song's all, song's all piss me off again and just like roll roll into the first song and then when just the, the moments we were walking on stage there was this huge curtain back on stage and there were amps behind that curtain with Metallica's logo on them and so I got on stage with this in my brain, my drunken brain somehow, and we play the first song and there was probably about, it was a huge tent, but there was probably maybe 7,000 people, which I know sounds like a lot, but in a situation like that, yeah. it looks kind of sparse. And, and I said, hey, uh, I think you guys should, like all you people here in the front here, I think you should stay. There's a bunch of amps with M's on them back there for, I don't know, Metallica. And there had been a rumor that they were going to play anyway. So... It like after I said that, there was fifty thousand people in that tent, <laughs> and we got it within minutes. And so we got to play a whole other set to like the main stage crowd, and then brand new played, and then after you, and then Metallica played. Yeah, wow. And it was like it was totally wild. Yeah, and then I went up to Jesse after like Metallica was on stage, and he's like moping around. He's like, and I, I wasn't sure if he knew. I can't remember the conversation I have because at that point I'm fucking wrecked and I'm just so psyched. Yeah, like, you're about to see Metallica. Like fucking Metallica's playing. We just opened for Metallica. We didn't, I didn't know this was going to happen when I thanks, woke up this Chevelle. morning. Yeah, thanks, Chevelle, who I eventually toured with and did thank him. <laughs> but yeah, and it's, it's actually in the Some Kind of Monster documentary. Really? Oh, yeah, part of it. Yeah, it's, it's Oh, I need to watch shows. that again. It's a really short part of it and I don't know if they even talked about because it was ironic at the time that they played the Download Festival whatever. And it was like the small stage. Give me a fucking break. Yeah. Anyway, so so I'm talking to Jesse, and I'm like, dude, it's fucking sick. We just all for Tally. So, yeah, I'm not really a fan. Like, I want to kick him in the nuts. <laughs> fuck you. Anyway, so <laughs> how are you not a fan of just like one song just, or two songs? It's not even a matter. You don't have to be a, matter, a fan yeah. of the band. This is fucking sick. Yeah. Like this is so cool. Like I like. Do I like Metallica's later records? I don't give a fuck. <laughs> But like you're not I, you're not throwing Lulu on anytime. Right, I, I, you know it's like <laughs> opening for you too and be like, oh, I really like you too. Like fuck you, you do too. <laughs> it's part of the fabric of our fucking society, you know. Oh, the Beatles suck too, asshole. Go fuck yourself. Anyway, so I don't know. Yeah. 
I have no opinion about that band. Anyway, um, the brand new that is not the Beatles. I have a lot of opinions about them. <laughs> I just watched the uh, uh, documentary that uh, uh, Ron Howard did about their live years. I didn't see it yet. It's I, pretty rad. Is it? It's just about them right. touring. That's got to be weird. It's unreal. The footage they had. Oh yeah. Oh, I can imagine. That's crazy. Yeah, I, um, Adam's uh, my old bass player, Adam Marino's dad was the cop who like I think if, if I remember correctly, this is the story. He might he might correct me for the about this, but was like one of the cops that was up in the hotels, um, when they first came over, and like you know saw what was going on, you know, like girls up there and all this crazy shit. <laughs> Fucking wild. Anyway. Um, the amount of shit. Yeah, yeah. Adam Marino's dad was also friends with Joe Namath. Really? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> I bet you guys have had some stories from uh, Pop. Like, yeah, you have no idea. I love that kid. Um, but yeah, so then that happened and, and we got two 5K live reviews in Kerrang! for the same day, which had never been done before. We played, I played Download Festival four times. Um, and for a while I was the person I played the most and then that, they never asked us back after gave Johnny Depp played there which was a shit show <laughs> um, but anyway so yeah it was uh, it was awesome we got home we went we moved to Los Angeles we did a record with Bob Ezrin um, uh, at Cherokee Studios where they did Van Halen 1, 2, and 3 and wow. Led Zeppelin 3 and like what you know it was fucking wild it was a crazy LA experience um uh, you know, I, I was living in West Hollywood. Uh, it was, yeah, it was fun. It was fun as shit. We recorded next to Sparta. Um, so we spent a month next to those guys and, um, you know, it's shit like, uh, Stephen Perkins played on our record. Like, wow. Just shit like that. It was just LA thing. Total LA thing. Yeah. I mean, that shit happens a lot more out there because the people are just available. How long were you out there? Um, not long. I, I, I think we moved there in September. We were home by Christmas. And that um, record came out on Geffen. That record sort of came out. But yeah, I mean, basically... I they, remember buying it at Tower on 4th oh, Lafayette. Really? They waited way too long to put it out, and then they waited another year to put it out in England, where we were already popular. Yeah. What? Dude, these people are idiots. Everybody was like... And I'm sure there was internal stuff. I sat in a meeting, I kid you not, where... So DreamWorks and uh, Interscope Geffen had combined, Universal... And so all the A&R people who didn't get fired came over and the bands. So that's why Sparta, we were la- label mates with Sparta right. at that point. Um, and so Rise Against A&R person, I can't remember her name. But I, they, I don't know why I sat in this meeting. Maybe it was like I was supposed to woo her into like, hey, put Being some money behind it. us. Yeah. But I knew it. I knew as soon as, as soon as I knew that like they were, well, Jimmy cut all the budgets for... Jimmy cut all the budgets for rock bands because it's all about pop and hip hop. Because at that point, Jessica Simpson just hit and, you know, 50 Cent and Eminem and all the shit. So like, and rock bands just cost a lot of money to develop. And these bands was a fucking joke. It's like, you know, what, what is four faders going up on a fucking 50 Cent record? Yeah, so like, I, I know that for a fact because I worked at Right Track Studio on 48th Street. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> it's a fucking joke. Anyway, so like the, the uh, I would like just sitting in this meeting and they were like okay we we're deciding who's gonna who's allocating money who's gonna get money behind them for this initial push because our records came out around the same time and um they were just like well look you know these guys are gonna sell fifty thousand records automatically the first week so because they were already established and we were a new band i was like we're not a new band in england i was like what you know yeah but that's a different company and that was the problem. So Polydor over there. Oh, and right. Po- but Polydor wouldn't do anything until Universal told them from America. To p- it was, 
like we we got so fucking shafted and we spent so at that point i'm still in the middle of making my record so i was at that point i was like fuck this i'm gonna spend so much fucking money I don't give a flying fuck about any because I knew at that point that they were going to do a soft release and it was going to get fucked. Wow! And then we, like you then knew with, that before it was done. Oh fuck yeah! I I mean I had I didn't know no but I had a feeling I had a real strong feeling. Holy shit! When they started saying the word soft release, I was like, eh, there we go, wow. guys. That's it. Like soft release means you're doing everything yourself, and which is fine. We we were used to that, but you know, like you're in the confines of this massive corporation, and it was. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to fucking... I've, I had this song that I wrote that, and Bob Ezrin, who, for people who don't know, Bob Ezrin produced Pink Floyd, The Wall, and uh, uh, he, um, the first five Alice Cooper records and Kiss Destroyer and whatnot. And he's known for his grandiose string arrangements. And he... Uh, I was like, yo, I got this song. It's called Feed the Culture. It was an acoustic thing. I had done a couple of demos of it. Uh, it's in like this really wacky Led Zeppelin style tuning. I was like, it doesn't really fit the record, but I'd love to put like an orchestra on it and a sitar player. And like, he was like, Bob's like, yeah, like it's no big deal. I'm like, really? Oh, oh, okay. So that was when we got Steve. I was like, I was like, I want a drum circle. He's like, we'll get Stephen Perkins. I was like, wow. And we did a drum. So we did a half an hour raga with Stephen Perkins and six other people. And like, oh, it was fucking awesome. I had so much fun. And we did a full string arrangement, which basically I was like humming to the guy what I wanted. And then they brought it back. And then it was like, it, I mean, we must have spent forty grand on that song alone, and I was fuck it. I don't care. I don't care. I just want to. I want to do something that I'm going to be so proud of. It's and I don't care what. Pe- and when the reviews came out of the record, AP gave a one out of ten, I believe. I mean, on that, which, I mean, which was hysterical. Speaking of, we're on an emo fucking podcast. Yeah. So I got to mention it. Yeah, <sighs> I was. Bring, one I was bringing it up to Jonah Bear. I'm like, Jonah, did you write it? Did you write it? Tell me the truth. But um, he's like overseeing it. Oh, I'm sure he fucking wrote it. Fuck him. Anyway, I love him. And, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, he probably overseed. They were like, no, the, the editor of AP called me, uh, Jason Pettigrew. And he was like, he, he apologized personally. Uh, yeah. He was like, we don't, we don't edit reviews. So, and I was like, dude, I've, I've known you. Like I knew him from, from past. And he showed up a show in, in Cleveland with the Brand X box set as a, as a peace offering to me. Wow. Which I thought was really sweet. Because it was like. Unfa- it was like this this band wants to be creed why the fuck did i get this record that was basically what it was and wow I was, like, I was like you obviously didn't read the bio or you're too young to know who we are you know but like that's fine whatever i, I got i don't get that comparison but you know it was i wrote a radio rock record now that like where you say Aerotype went for it instruction really went for it and that was like you know and then subsequently when we got dropped godfire's man was like still in sort of that world you know we were managed by mcgathy and radio and all that but shit that's a weird fucking time though it was terrible because i mean because because that first godfather's man is my favorite record i've ever written really oh my god it's it's fucking like the songs are incredible the band was great Drew so Thomas. that's your favorite stuff you've done yeah ever yeah um at the at the time though the whole time i was in gay for johnny depp so that was why we had false names because i was signed to geffen and we couldn't use it and eventually joe who was in garrison um and the guitar player for Gave Giant Depp, he kind of like is Gave Giant Depp, um, joined instruction after we did the record. So we were both in Gave Giant Depp and that, and we were touring simultaneously when we could. Because, you know, nobody knows Gave Giant Depp over here, but in England, it was it was kind of a big deal for, you know, in that world. At and least. that was around for a minute. It was, uh, yeah, we broke up in 2011. We did, we went over to, to Europe to do Gross Rock Festival, not Gross Rock, uh, Poco Pop. 
and there was a huge storm and a bunch of people died. We were in Cologne waiting oh, to wow. go to Belgium to play this festival and they canceled the festival and we were, we like put our tail between our legs. We were like, I think this is a sign. <laughs> but you know, but that band was always a side project and, and, uh, and it probably sold more records than any band I've ever been in. So, yeah, wow. <laughs> but the Godfire's man time, Oh seven, you know, that's when yeah. it's, it, the taking back Sundays of the world and the hair and all. I mean, that kind of world was that. Yeah. And we played, we opened for Thursday. We opened for take back Sunday. Like we, you know, yeah, uh, you're friends with all them. Yeah. I mean, but it was, you know, I got drew behind this, behind the kit looking like, uh, like fucking Keith Richards. And, you know, like we, we just didn't fit the, we didn't fit the suit. You know what I mean? Like we were weird looking, but the, but the record to me, that first one is great. The second one's incredible too. We recorded it, paid for it ourselves, put it out ourselves. Um, we had no management. We had nothing. We just kind of, and we went to Europe and had a horrible tour. Um, but like, yeah, it was, uh, that was some of my favorite time because it was very, like you really, I went from a situation that was very business oriented and, and I'm just, it's just not me. You know, it's like, I. Like I play because I love it and I still play because I love it. There's no money in it. There's never been any money in it. Um, even when I was signed to a major label and had an EMI publishing deal and all that shit, like, I mean, I, I lived on $33,000 for three years. Uh, and like, <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah. But you know, when you're in that touring cycle, a lot of shit gets paid for. So I didn't have to spend a lot. Uh, but I mean, the experiences that I had during that time were, you know, they would have never happened had I not signed to Geffen and done all that stuff. And it was just like, incredible i i have lifelong friends that i met during that time the same way i do from the underground days and uh i still can go to england and and play and i just did with primitive weapons opening for dillinger and see the same faces that i used to see back then and uh there's so many kids with instruction tattoos in england. really yeah oh that's right that's fucking super cool yeah i saw this girl who i'd never met before and never saw after she had a huge piece on her back i was like that's dedicated I think I, yeah, I, I always play like these fatherly roles. I'm like, that's don't, please don't do that again. Please. Isn't that the thing? Like got to keep them off the pole. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> but yeah, and it's a, uh, it, it's, it's crazy. Like and at the end of, at the end of uh gave giant Depp in 2011 is when we opened St. Vitus. And, uh, well, wait, can I talk about unwed? Oh yeah, of course. Of course. Dude, I so, loved unwed. Oh my God. Hot water plus small brown bike. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. It was great. It was like, like, basically, Jason and I, Jason approached me, Jason and Nel- his wife, Nelty, um, she was a singer, uh, they approached me, he was, he was like in the middle of playing on the Modest Mouse record and um, living in Seattle, he was in the middle of a divorce, and him and Nelty at that point were together, and then he flew, he moved to New York, which he fucking hated, I, don't, I never understood why they lived in New York, I was like, Jason, you guys don't go out. That's the whole point of living in New York is going out. Do shit. <laughs> right. Like they don't drink, they don't eat meat. They they make their own fucking soda. Like they like they don't even go to coffee shops. Like they're fucking they're making their own like it was like they lived in this really nice apartment, but they they were they're really wonderful, wonderful people. And Jason and I have been friends for years. I'm friends with all the hot water guys and and uh, I mean I got stories from those tours. Oh my god, those guys used to be fucking crazy. Did you it, do did you play 530? We're going to digress. Did you play 533 with them? Who else was on the show? Fuck. Because all I remember is the sound being... 6107 play? <sighs> yes. Yeah. Because I remember this, something happened with the stage. Like the stage broke because too many people and the sound guy got mad and ripped out everything. And I remember Chuck going and like 
doing the sound. Like uh, they were like sound checking, trying to figure it out again because uh, the sound guy. If, quit. if this happened when Hot Water was on, sound guy quit. Nice. Like the sound guy quit during the show. I'm sure Chuck had done sounded at the hardback or something, so he got the experience. <laughs> I, I, at that, if Dreaming Hot Water music fishing. was on stage, that usually means I was blacked out. So why? Because I'd already played and I was done. And I was going to get fucked up with Caleb, who plays in S Friends Rust, who was always out with that. We were, <laughs> we, me and him would just get wasted and fucking act like assholes. Um, Some of the most fun shows I've ever been to have been hot water shows. Dude, I mean, in those days when it was like just a free for all, their new video is great, by the way. Oh, I haven't seen footage. it. It's great. Yeah, like there's some footage from Vitus, actually, when they oh, play right. with the Descendants. Um, <clears throat> but like a lot of it is like, Europe in the in the early early two thousands and basement shows where it's just like sweaty and everybody's on top of each other and the but yeah unwed was great and uh, like yeah Jason got in touch with me and they just wanted to write he had a bunch of songs and he's like you know I know you're playing primitive weapons now and that's a way heavier thing and you know like you got any rock tunes you want to do and you know Nelty was going to sing and I always. I had I had so many songs and I was like I always wanted female vocals on them and I was like yeah sure and and you know eventually of course Nelty and I basically became co-lead singers but she wrote she wrote 99 if not 100% of the, of the vocal parts but I I wound up having to sing quite a bit um which I'm more than happy to do you know we wound up doing vocals with Brian McTernan um <clears throat> recorded the record at Vitus in the live room and uh yeah, it was just super fun. I mean, we brought in Matt Kane, who played with uh, in Big Collapse with Josh Luca. Yeah. Um, and wait, what was he again? He was the um, he's a guitar player. Guitar player. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was actually oddly enough the assistant engineer on the first Aerotype Eleven record. Yeah. Wow. Totally re- weird. Um, but I knew Matt for years, and uh, Jeff I didn't really know, but I knew Jeff because he had a King Crimson tattoo, and we bonded because i have a yes tattoo or multiple yes tattoos and i was like yeah cool he's like i don't even really like this i just like the design because typical jeff he's everything's got to be fucking sarcastic and weird um <clears throat> that band was weird because i was the only person that didn't drink that did drink they all, were all sober and so touring was super fun with them because i had no responsibility it would just be like um, I know I'm not driving <laughs> peace guys <laughs> but it, the, the band was really good the album is I think the album is fantastic. Um, it didn't really get, I don't know if it didn't get a push or just like, you know, hot water fans weren't feeling it or like what the case was, but um, I'm super proud of it. And, cool. you know, I miss those guys a lot. They, they, Nelty and Jason moved back down to Florida. Uh, so did, so did Matt. Uh, so <clears throat> everybody's kind of all over the place now. But yeah. what's I think cool about all of these bands and all of these stories is that it really does lead to St. Vitus and the connections and the i mean that's how that's why i'm sitting here i didn't sit here because i'm good at my job i sat i'm here because i'm friends with a lot of people and i've stayed in touch with them and at some point you're going to see them again yeah i mean that's always the best way to be like you know even on the major label level i'm still you know i still have lunch with bill mcgathy he used to be my manager you know like like i still see all these people and like you know i go to a show they're managing biffy clara over here now i went to see biffy and uh you know it's all these people that say hey you know it's like i i I wasn't i should have been more of an asshole in that time to tell you the truth like in the on the on the major label version of my bands um because i maybe i would have gotten more done maybe that was just being the nice guy was the wrong approach uh but i wasn't and uh because i'm just not i'm not like the business guy you know what i mean like I just wanted to 
play music and have people hear my songs and tour and, and, you know, maybe eke out some sort of a living where I could pay my rent. Um, and, you know, Vitus, it's not like you just came in from Duluth and opened it right. up. Well, you can't do that. And you've got so you had so that's, many that's people. a message. That's like, that's a that's a recipe yeah. for failure. I mean, you see people do that shit in New York all the time. I'm going to come to New York and take yeah. over. You can't do that in L.A. You can't do that in New York. You can't do it in Boston. Like there are certain places that you have to have some sort of background there. And there, I mean, there's so and you have to sustain it. Right. It's this a place where it's rent's expensive. It's like you got to have people there and groups yeah. of different people through the night. Like I mean, people don't understand how much pressure there is with the overhead and the overhead gets higher and higher as you're open longer. Part of the success of Vitus and, and I say success because you're we, still open after still one open. year. Yeah. I mean, and as we both know the, the way that venues work, it's, it's almost impossible and here in New York. It's like literally a thousand times harder than any place else. Um, not because you can't get people to come, but because the city has so many regulations and there's so many things that there's so many things that can go wrong. You know, with more people comes more opportunity for things to go wrong. Um, but also because we're actually from here, which helps. Um, and the the show the the sh- the place sounds great. It looks cool. Um, and if you know, it eventually after a couple of years became the place that people had to play. You know, I saw the Gojira shirt out there. I mean, like that was that was a wild show. You know, Dillinger Dillinger in our little space was sick. It was a throwback to the old days for them. You know, um, Hot Water and Descendants, which was one of the worst and best days of my life. Um, I don't get to have fun ever. So, like, none of this shit is fun for me. Uh, I just I just want to make sure everything happens and nothing goes wrong. Yeah. You know, it's like like uh, it's. It's exciting and you can be proud when you look back at the pictures or the videos, which there's videos of almost every show that's ever happened. Um, but I just love that you – all these band things, I feel like you wanted to like be this like big music and make records and you are. But they didn't have like that major label or like million sellers. You weren't I just wanted one song. Just give me one fucking song. I know you wanted one song. So I can keep making – a couple of checks. All, all you need is life. one song. I know it's all you need is one song, especially in the nineties. The amount of mediocrity that made money in the nineties was fucking unbelievable. No, you just needed one song. But I still think the the culmination of this part, this is the it led to this though. Absolutely. And and you know I love that. I I, I, I got into bartending because I had no other choice. And within five years I owned a place. And it's a you know that that's a pretty good record and I mean it was the timing was really good for for metal, honestly. You know, like, I, I think we got lucky with that. It's, there's definitely been a, a downturn. And that's a loyal audience. It is, but it, there's definitely been a downturn. There's, you know, it was pretty hip three years ago. You know, wh- whether it be fashion wise or whatnot, and there there were a lot of bands, and the amount of, like, the industry's changed so drastically where people don't sell records, and and bands are touring more, so they're coming through more, and so it's like less and less people. Are, you can't, you just can't do it. You know, you can't expect. 250 people to show up every time you play you know if you just played three months ago it doesn't work on like the hey we're building our crowd type way it doesn't work that way anymore it's like you start here and then you start going down and then you got to figure out a way to sort of maintain maintain it um it's sad to me to see uh but you know like we've also you know three or four years ago we we saw the writing on the wall we were like yo, like we can't live on metal alone we won't be able to pay our bills so we need to start diversifying and a lot of that revolved around uh sort of you know th- it, it, there is an association but starting to have more of the bands like we had descendants in, in hot water which was 
by happenstance that that happened. But like, I mean, you uh, just had the Van Pelt. We just had the Van Pelt. We've had Mineral um, with Frank Turner going on first, which was hysterical. Um, he's an old friend of mine. Uh, like uh, uh, Frank and I had an episode where we just talked about new metal. Oh yeah, dude. I'm sure because that's probably what he listened to when he was young. Yeah. It was really fun. He's about the right age. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and like fucking uh, quicksand. You know that was that was a huge one for me personally. Um, I mean, obviously having the I didn't the, enjoy it because I did the lights. But having the, you know, having uh, the um, the remaining members of Nirvana, you know, that well, night. Yeah, I mean, that was just like, uh, that's so far beyond everything that has gone on. I mean, you know, maybe, I can't even say, like, the, the second biggest band we ever had was Megadeth, you know, and like, uh, it's not even close. You know, like, the Nirvana thing, especially since, like, Jay Maskus and Joan Jett and, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if I should tell the story or not, but... I, I told it so many times. I just I feel like I feel like people everybody knows the story, but then I'm like, wait, that, how many people are we talking about here? Really, in reality, that know this story. Um, but yeah, Nirvana and Friends, quote unquote, played, uh, and it was after the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony. Dave Grohl was looking for a place to throw like an after party, and uh, you know, I made a I made a hard sell. I got a phone call on April Fool's Day about it. Really, <laughs> and I thought it was a joke. <laughs> And I didn't call the guy back because he didn't say it was this guy, JC, who manages the Foo Fighters. And he didn't say um, from the Foo Fighters office or Dave Grohl's office. He just said, hey, uh, this is JC uh, looking about a show. Like, and no one calls us about a show. They email us, you know. And uh, I was like, oh, this L.A. number. I don't fucking know who this is. And then he called back again. And, <laughs> L.A. number. <laughs> and uh, he called back again and he said he was from Dave Grohl's office. And I was like, oh, this has got to be a fucking joke. And I was at Restaurant Depot, like getting plastic cups and. Yeah, and limes. Yeah. yeah, and, uh, and limes. And and uh, I listened to the message, and I was like, uh, and I played it. For my my partner was sitting in the car with me, and I was just like, and he's like, dude. And then I got a text message right at that moment, like from my friend. He's like, if you get a call from LA, call it back <laughs> or answer the phone. And I was, and I knew who she was. She worked for Dave Grohl's um, company, and I was like, pull over, <laughs> call him back. Um, and at the same time, the, the booking agent for the Foo Fighters was calling Dave. Because they were at this point, I guess they were frustrated. Hardy's <laughs> being a dick. Yeah, I'm being a dick. Uh, so I talked to him, and I was just like, "Yeah, like, well, we got another venue, and I'm pretty sure it was between us and the Bell House, and the Bell House is closer." Um, and I was like, "Well, you know, I really feel like Dave will love our place, you know, blah blah blah, and, you know, it's like metal and you know, probot and whatnot." And then, uh, as it turned out, it was this guy Jim Rhoda who works uh, for the production for his production company. Uh, they were doing Sonic Highways at the time, the the whole yeah, documentary. Yeah. Um, and Jim Rhoda had played Vitus uh, in a band called The Company Band, which has like, a guy from Clutch. And he used right. to be in... Uh, oh, fuck, I'm such an asshole. Not Peter and Testy Babies. Uh, I'm such an asshole. I can't remember. Anyway, um, uh, oh, Norman Bates and Showerheads. Although he wasn't in that band, he was in the band after that. Anyway, so we had done a benefit for his one of the guys in his band who died... Um, and he played, I believe he played in company band and he was just like, I love this place. I've been telling Dave about it for this is all, the day of, I found out all this stuff. And he was the one who really pushed for it to happen with us because he knew Dave would love the place. And, um, yeah, so we, we knew about it for about four days. Only three of us knew about it and we didn't tell anybody. We just told the whole staff to show up that night. Um, <laughs> we need you tonight. <laughs> yeah. It's like everybody show up. We'll tell you what's going on when you get here. And, and, uh, that was pretty much it. And everybody, you know, it, it went off. They played from 2am to 4am. Um, Everybody was really, really super nice, uh, maybe a little drunk. Um, 
there was maybe 150 people, if that, probably less. Uh, it was really sparse. Jay Maskus was fucking amazing. Um, sparse meaning that there was not that many. By that time, all those people had been at the Hall of Fame thing all night. So we let about 40 people in who we knew who showed up, who knew about it. Uh, which filled in the crowd really nicely, and actually it was good because they were actual fans. So they like you know not only were they like oh my god, so you god. didn't announce anything? No, we couldn't. Are you kidding me? That was my biggest worry: is that somebody who got an invitation was going to tweet about it, and we were going to have another descendant situation with a thousand people outside, and and at two o'clock in the morning we were going to get closed down. So it was a really really tight secret, and it was it was Dave's party. So and and. They were incredibly great. I mean, he hired a photo booth guy. Well, his company did. The photo booth guy didn't even know about it. He had no clue why he was there. Wow. He's like, it's some party or something. I was like, yeah, Nirvana's playing, dude. He's like, what? Wow. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, tr- just be on just, time. Just chill out for a second. <laughs> <laughs> this was at about like 10 o'clock that I told him, I think. Anyway, and the band that played that night, um, Girlfriends or Boyfriends or something, they were total dicks. Uh, it, they were all pissed off at us, but whatever. I, I was like, whatever. The, the, the world will keep turning. Guy did interviews afterwards and, and was like, and I like the band too. It bummed me out. But he talked shit about us from stage. He was like, I was going to tell them all to stay. And, and we, we put up signs and said, that we were like, look, guys, the show's got to be over by 11, which is not a big deal, honestly, on a weeknight. What it's 11. Yeah. You didn't and, tell them 9.30. And, and we, you know, we, we didn't cancel the show, which is what originally was going to happen. Yeah. And, and, uh, I know, like the guy was just like he reminded me of myself in the late nineties, honestly, like just bitter and shitty. And um, so, like he did a couple interviews afterwards and like said that we were dicks and we kicked him out. We threw their shit on the sidewalk and uh, um, that's probably his ego. Yeah, I mean it was weird. Uh, whatever. He was like, "Oh, is Guns and Roses shooting a video tonight. Better be Guns and Roses." And I was like laughing. I'm, I'm in the <laughs> booth. I'm like, dude. Even, even but he better. said shit like. It wasn't the real Nirvana, whatever. You know, like shit like that. It was like, dude, you could have come. And you, if you stayed, you would have had fun. But you wanted to be a dick. Back to, fly back to Austin and go fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah. Time. <laughs> anyway, it was, yeah, it was a wild experience. And that was, that was really like, we had already done a bunch of late night shows like Carvalho Talk. And uh, I, th- I think Against Me was after that. But it was after that that happened that we became now the spot to do that so like against me saves day uh like the the list is long we haven't done one in a while but i, I you know who i tried remember we tried with who i tried to get jimmy world to do it oh with jimmy world oh, dude that would have been so sick i, I mean hey they, they, fellas jim come down jam they said if they didn't that zach told me he said we would be totally into it if they, there was some scheduling thing where they need like a certain day off, right. and they were like, "We fucking jammed it too much." Um, yeah, but I mean, I'm gonna. Well, I, I understand that if like like if they like the night that Descendants and Hot Water played, I wanted Hot Water to play that night, and they were like, "Dude, we got to drive to Toronto tomorrow. We have an overnight." So there was just no way. Yeah, and then the show got canceled, and it, it all worked out. But but I I mean obviously we understand that with routing, and if you can't do it, you can't do it. Yeah, but you know, but even that they like. I think it's known or and I don't think it's sticky either because it's a different vibe. Oh yeah. And you know, I think I mean I remember the, this wasn't your venue but Refuse did the Archeron that like, right. sort they, of the like, first time they did one and they Yeah, did the fir- that. and yeah. that was like you know that same kind of feeling I'm sure well, we were supposed to have that show. What happened? We already we had Young Widows that night. Oh. Like it was we couldn't do it. That's we already why. had a sold out show. I'm sure Rich hit you up first. Yeah, I mean, well, Rich was working for us at the time. Um, oh, but, I didn't uh, know that. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was happy for whoever got that, you know, and we were 
all friends with those people so it was but it was it, a different show they got it, to play an earth crisis cover that wouldn't have made sense in front of 4000 or 30 right and when they played our place they did all covers you know it was that was awesome it was amazing <laughs> it was so much fun <laughs> thanks for getting me in dennis told, dennis in. dennis didn't uh, i met dennis in 1994 in uh in pt sweden and uh the him and the, the we were the donuts opened for us not the do nots the donuts the victory girl band uh, it was just mind over matter, and then nobody would talk to us because we drank, and uh, it was really funny. And like you know, Refuse wasn't a big deal at the time. Yeah, we were, no, like, sick of it all. Cover band basically, and uh, <laughs> the uh, like all those Scandinavian bands back then, they all fucking sounded like somebody from New York. I don't think there'll ever be a time where I don't want to play music and get on stage. And and I, with Vitus, I got really lucky to be able to incorporate all the things that I, all the skills I had gained. Like, you know, you don't realize, until you own a venue, you don't realize what you learned during all that time of touring, you know? And even the design of Vitus is a culmination of all these European metal bars that I had been in. And, you know, like, this is what we want to do. And it wasn't even supposed to be a fucking venue, but that was the only way to get people into, to go to outer Greenpoint. Because I think metal and punk and hardcore, like, we all want more people to come into our fold and i you know i don't care when you got into it. you could have gotten into it last year as long as you're into it that's cool you know it takes a little bit to do it well it's a youth culture too you know so it's like you 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 tend to get people who are in their teens you know early 20s that are just you know their brains are still developing and they're absorbing all this stuff and so like it's you know as you get older it becomes more of a nostalgic thing it's 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 weird but i'm really you know like i said i'm i'm lucky to have been able to realize that I gain, I did gain these skills. I know what bands want when they roll into town. That's a big skill, <laughs> believe yeah. it or not. You know, like, and and I, I I know how I wanted to be treated, and it's all very European. Like the way they do it over there is so much better. And granted, a lot of the you know because of social democracy, it's easier. You know, New York is just a fucking jungle, and they want to they want to find any way to shut small businesses down. They'll do anything. It's fucking bullshit. It sucks. Wow. It's like really, really difficult to keep, to get liquor licenses, to get permits, to get any of this shit. And it's all because like it, this is, you know, like when places like CBGB's opened, it was a shithole here. So you could do anything you wanted. And now it's a playground for the rich and Brooklyn is as well. So once those people start moving in, they don't want the, uh, you know, undesirable type places to, to be there. But, I think secretly they do. So, you know, we've survived. (laughs) And again, I feel lucky that I've had music in my life because that's, I'm a music nerd. That's what I do. You know, like, again, Yes is my favorite band. You know, I grew up on metal. I, you know, ask me anything about Discord. You know, like... You're a huge Britpop head. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we didn't even get into that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ask me anything about (laughs) Britpop. Jesus. Um, But like, I I just love music and... so it really that's when people always say like you love oasis i'm just like dude i love all, everything you know and I, I feel like that was really a big difference between airtype and uh, the other emo bands at the time was that we were coming from at least i was coming from a classic rock type feel you know what i mean like i i, I was into hardcore but i never really like i never really had this urge to want to play music like that but i like the energy of it and i like love the community and the scene and but, you know, I was busy listening to early 70s prog records and, <laughs> and you know, like I always like when people shave their heads, I grew my hair long. When people 
grew their hair long, I shaved my head. Like it was always this contrarian type thing, you know, looking like in 1994, looking like, you know, Damon Auburn or Liam Gallagher was kind of not cool, you know, and at least in the hardcore scene, it, but eventually it did become cool. You know, it was like, that's what everybody was listening to. Everybody, you know, all of a sudden everybody's like, rides my favorite band. I'm like, really? Uh, you know, Cast. cool. And, 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 but I've been through all of that stuff and I love, I just love it all. It's like, you know, there's nothing. And I also, you know, people who play in bands, it's like, you, there's a lot of effort that goes into it. The songwriting, the rehearsing, going to play a show, playing shows, just the, every, the only part about playing a show that's good is being on stage. Everything else fucking sucks. Yeah, it's 45 minutes of awesome it's, and then the rest of the- I used to love it. And then I got, then I had roadies. <laughs> and now like, now like, yeah, the whole like sitting around, because all I'll do is get drunk. It's like, oh God, if I got nothing to do, I'm going to do this. And I, but then I can't get drunk because then I'm going to suck. And like, it's, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my life is so hard. But yeah. the, the, uh, no, but like, like if I could, if they could create like a transporter, That'd be awesome. Like if a hey, I want to play the underworld tonight in in Camden. All right, cool. I'm there. I didn't have to get on a plane. Wasn't there a Portlandia episode where they put on those virtual reality? Oh no, they put on helmets and they didn't want to go to the festival, so there was a drone that was there for them to watch the festival for them. So they're in these like headset like things and they watch the festival from the drones. That's the future, isn't it? (laughs) It's it's the present. But they didn't have to go to the festival. They could just go through the drones, right? Yeah. that's amazing but dude that's yeah that's gonna happen that's gonna fucking happen it's it's just crazy like like and it's funny when i, I meet uh, so this is a good story that that pertains to to sort of late 90s emo stuff so airtype played open for shiner at gramercy theater shiner are old friends of ours we had played with them a bunch um in the early 2000s i fucking worship the egg i mean what a yeah. fucking incredible record i love life and times too everybody should buy buy their new record um and I was they I was five o'clock in the morning hanging out with Josh Newton at Vitus. He used to live down the block, and he's like, "Oh, I think we're going to play some shows." And I was like, "Do two nights here." He's like, "All right, cool, yeah, totally, that's great." Well, it, then all of a sudden, you know, I don't know who got involved, some fucking booking agent, and it's like, "Oh, it's at Irving Plaza, like Airtype and, and Shiner." I was like, "Who the fuck thinks that a good? That's a good idea." And then it got moved down to Gramercy, and it was good. It was a good turnout. It was super fun. They were incredible, but in the meantime. I found out that Braid was going to play, I think they played Music Hall maybe, and then they were going to play Vitus at Late Night. And um, I don't. I think it was something that they, they wanted to use another band's gear. They didn't want to show up with gear. So it was like, all right, cool, like Airtype will play. We'll get in the car. We'll just roll over after the Gramercy show. So we, do, we get in the car. Of course, we get stuck in insane traffic. It takes us an hour and a half to get from Gramercy to Vitus, oh. right? And, and – uh, we, so we were really late. There is like 500 people in the building. It was Looney Tunes. We couldn't get the gear through the crowd. <clears throat> Finally get up there. And it's running late. So we only did a few songs. We did five songs. And I got on stage and I was like, uh, the first thing I said, I was like, so uh, we're our type 11. Uh, you can watch. You have to sit through us to get to Braid. If you don't want to watch us, go to the bar and drink. Either way, I win. <laughs> and so we start playing. And all these kids who were sort of like metal kids who were, you know, living in Brooklyn and, and like, they're all fucking singing along. They had no idea that I was in Airtype 11. Really? Yeah. 
I like there's all these fucking kids. I was like, what the fuck? It got to that part in Better the Super Bowl, Better the Super Bowl, and, and I was like expecting no one to sing. And I could I could hear people singing along, so I had a, I was like, all right, I'll take the risk and I'll step back from the mic. And I stepped back, and the whole crowd started singing. And I was like, yes. But it was I got off stage, and people were like, dude, I had no fucking idea. I was like, that's so weird. How did I mean, they not know? You have I, the internet, don't they have the internet? I don't know, man. It, they probably hadn't thought about it in years. And they, you know, they, maybe they were there to see Braid. They might have just been there to hang out. But like as soon as I mean, it is, playing, it is, it is the right demo. It is the right. It age. is the right. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was a. Uh, that That's was cool. A, that was really super cool, really eye opening to me. Musically, it's hard to have goals. Um, Business wise, I have a lot, and and you know, I, I've definitely transitioned in my head and, and and out of necessity because St. Vitus is really the first thing I've ever done that I was successful on a business level. You know, that's what I meant. But it came the culmination from all those other things, which yeah. I guess is always it. But it, it's something with music where you're able to use. Uh, almost everything you've done since the first time you met ed at the show oh yeah totally totally you know and and threw ed out of the band yeah although that wasn't me although he'll always claim but it's it being me. like you met him and then it's you know <laughs> yeah yeah totally uh, i mean i remember the first time we recorded demos of matter of matter you know it was like crazy uh, it, and it's it's like you don't realize i think other people talk about songwriting and and uh they just think it's like this magical thing you know it's like what it's so like they, they in their brains they can't imagine writing a song like i can't imagine painting a painting because i'm not good at it but songwriting is like certain people just do it naturally you know certain people do it naturally and really terribly and <laughs> and certain people do it really well a lot of people do actually that's that's one of the shames of the internet is that there's so much stuff that falls wayward and there's so many people i, I look at music very much like i look at the tech world or or um where or science where they lose they lose the brightest and the smartest to the business world because there's more money in it and you know like nobody wants to sit in a lab or or develop things or like you know it's uh it's same thing with music where you have these really talented people but they're they there's no there's an outlet but if they have like one failure or it just takes too long to to get there they're going to have a backup plan and they'll just disappear into whatever work that they do and they'll never have that chance that that we took to get in a van and go for years and, and develop and get better and, you know, realize what works and what doesn't. And it's, uh, cause you can't do that from the fucking computer screen, you know? Um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's, I think that it's, somebody brought this up to me the other day. Like, do you think there'll ever be a time when there just isn't bands anymore? And I was like, there might be, you know, that might happen uh, or it might just get so, so small and that, that, people can't be bothered or it's not, it's not viable for on a monetary level. Um, and you know, with virtual reality, maybe live music won't be a reality anymore. You know, like people will just be looking in a headset. It's, I think things are moving at light speed right now on the tech side of the world. And, and, uh, you know, if we make it through this North Korea thing, um, Jesus we'll, uh, <laughs> I keep looking out the window, you know, you I know, right. Like, they can't reach us. It's okay. Okay. It's Guam or, or California, probably Alaska. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, it's, it's, it's weird. I don't know where it's going or where, you know, but it seems like, it seems like people are going to, I hope not, but live music will always exist, but it's going to be in a different format. Maybe it'll be a drone in a festival. Maybe it'll be just live streaming, which live streaming is great, but it's not a perfect thing because of... I still want to feel it. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. That's the other thing. Getting the sound right on live streaming is is not. It's definitely not the same. It's not even close. Um, and we do. We've done our share of live streaming. Um, but I, I think people have become more and more homebound too. You know, like they just don't leave. It's like, well, why why should I leave? I could just watch the show on YouTube. You know, the day after it happened. And so, yeah. That's what I'm. That's what I meant by it. Kind of goes full circle of like I didn't know anything when I was going to those shows. It's just, it's all gone. All that shit's gone. So there's no point in lamenting about it. It's just like, okay, how do we move forward? How do we adapt? How do we deal with it? You know, like, like I was listening to your Kevin Lyman um, podcast and it was interesting. It's interesting to me that it's still going, A. But like, it, it, it's, you know, there's the way he talked about how he does things. It's very old school, you know. Um, I think they got a little boost from that Dickies thing this, this summer. But, yeah, you know, that was weird. I fucking ah, you know I, Shana from Warren Woman, uh, she's a, uh, she's she's cool like that. I mean I think they take that shit a little far, but I mean that's the point. You know I, I like that somebody's being protesting and speaking up and being doing like the you know the tradition of punk rock. You know I think they they took it too far with the Dickies. It just like who fucking cares? I was like the Dickies really like who the fuck cares? Yeah, you know? like let this guy say what he wants. Penises. I mean, yeah, he reacted poorly, and you know, I, thank God the the internet didn't and the iPhone didn't exist when I was younger. Uh, I would be a lot different. Um, but yeah, it's like like just like give me a break. Yeah. I, but they used it as a platform for women's rights and feminism and you know harassment. And the reality of it is, is that you know I don't think I've ever dated a girl in my life who hasn't been abused in some way. So that's fucking sad. And so people need to get that information out there you know maybe somebody will think twice before they do something stupid you know I'm, i don't know i don't have the mindset i don't understand how these things happen but like it's uh yeah uh anyway it's a depressing subject let's end on something positive <laughs> no we're good. i can get back to park slope and have a happy hour <laughs> before i go to go pick up my daughter <laughs> no we're good i'm happy that you were able to do this and i'm happy that you're still making music and doing bands and and having different goals and it isn't um there's other it just seems like there's a lot going on and i just feel like there's a great culmination of all the your time in it it wasn't wasted like i i know some people will be like why are you going to those shows why are you buying those yeah, t-shirts oh, why dude. are you getting all those cds well it's, this is what i don't sleep at night because i'll just sit there and think about how much time i spent sitting around waiting to play or you know like and not like you just like i, sh- I could have been in college i could have done this i could have done that and it's like you know and then there's the other side of the coin is it that well you do this now and this is the culmination of all those experiences and you know i know that like there's this thing called the experience uh what is it called the experience economy that like is the new thing now where millennials want an experience they don't want to buy things whatever anyway (laughs) i listen to way too much podcasting uh um but it's it's uh i think that 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 was incredibly valuable you know and my parents, my mom's left the country once in her life. My dad never has. Like I've seen things like my dad just called me when I was in, I was in Oslo and, uh, and he's like, I was, he called me like three times. I was like, Oh, something happened. I wasn't going to answer. And I answered. I'm like, he's like, Hey, where are you? I'm like, I'm in Oslo, Norway. He's like, what? Like, it, you know, it doesn't know if I have a fucking clue what I'm doing, but it, that's cool. You know, I, um, it's, uh, those are experiences that I wish everybody could have, you know, play in front of a hundred thousand people, uh, you know, go to Japan. Yeah, traveling. Yeah, tra- I mean, when I was a kid, 
that was all I wanted to do. And playing music was a really great excuse to do that. Um, you know, in retrospect, then like, I'll, I'll you should balance it out with going to school and developing some sort of career. That's uh, that's all I. That's the advice I would give to anybody. It's like, don't fucking like, don't throw everything in the you know all your eggs in one basket and go. I'm gonna be a rock star. Like, no, you're not because that doesn't exist anymore. You know, like 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 you maybe you could become a YouTube star, YouTube star or something. I don't know. I don't know how much money there is. In there. Or a YouTube star. You never know. Yeah, I, or, or YouTube. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but yeah, it's like I just like that shit doesn't exist anymore. It's so. I, I I often like have plan B have please have a fucking plan B Jesus see like I got lucky and I you know I find it's funny because I'd love to I'd love to like I'd love for somebody to do like an article or something on what the people like say like all like the guys in the promise ring or like the guys in get up kids or, or any or the guys in, even on in a band like six going seven or or uh, some of like the lower tier stuff like what are the what are all those people doing for a living now well it's crazy i mean promising like davy's an accountant dan from drummer's been uh producing the jawbreaker doc that uh premieres tonight he's like he does post-production uh it's like i don't know everyone's kind of like because i always sometimes i have this like you know you have a a view of what someone is and you're like well they're a drummer in a band and then no, they have no. This they other were fucking thing. smart, and they went to college. Yeah, I, I remember, I remember touring with Snapcase, and and those guys would only tour in the summertime because they were all in school. Now, what the fuck? You, fuck that shit, man! Like you guys are in a huge band. Like you know, they were to me that was huge. It's like fuck, fuck going to college. It gives a shit. And you know, lo and behold, I'm sure they're all fucking doing something. I mean, you know? Eamon from uh, Karate is a doctor. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I know plenty of people who became lawyers and shit like that. Uh, it's but see, here's the lesson: fallback. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of dedication. It's all that, but <laughs> but but when you again, it's like it depends on what time in your life you're doing it, and you can't predict when you you're gonna have your moment. You know, I, I think you you know, working at a record label, you probably know this really well. Where it's like, uh, un- unfortunately for a lot of songwriters, they get better as they get older, but they'll only get the money to promote themselves when they're younger. So their material might not be their best, and then their best record comes out when they they're you know they're either dropped or they can't get a record deal, but they're fucking you know they've they've gotten to this pinnacle of songwriting. But it doesn't matter if there's no nobody to push you and no one to fucking make it happen. And I've seen that happen. I feel like that happened to me, and you know it's it I see it happen to lots of people. Where you like you pick up a record and you're like oh this is fucking incredible you know, but no one's gonna care because this isn't the height of the emo moment or like, you know, the height of new metal, you know what I mean? Like, and no one's going to get behind you on it. And it's, uh, and, and to tour, forget it, you know, like it's so expensive and the chances you're going to make your money back are so minimal. So it, you know, if you could still like to all the bands who got under the radar and get back together now, more power to you. If you broke up before like 2005 and you actually sold some records, like people were bugging out about this jawbreaker thing. And, and, uh, you know, just like I saw them play at ABC in Rio where they said that they would never sign to a major label, but I got why they did. And it's cool. Who gives a shit, you know, to each his own. Let's fucking people live their lives. Your stupid fucking rules that aren't real. Yeah. It's fucking ridiculous. What you like is not real. What you're thinking is not real. Okay. Just, and if the band wants to do it, the band wants to do it. They want to do it. Exactly. Like, you know, it, you're not in the band. Like, how long can you eat shit for? At some point, you want to, like, not eat shit. Or even when you sign to a major label, you're still eating shit. It's fucking, give me a break. But, like, it's, 
you know, people bugging out, oh, like they're reuniting and blah, 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 and all this shit. And it's like, yeah, so what? They won't let them. If I could fucking, re- one of my bands could reunite and play fucking Riot Fest headlining, oh my God. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You would be there in five seconds. Yeah. You'd be there before there, five I mean, there seconds. are some, some reunions that I agree with, and there are other reunions where I look at it and I go, take the paycheck away from that, and that wouldn't happen. Shelter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't you think all of them are about money, though? Eat the today. Which one? <laughs> Eat the today. Oh. Well, obviously, every there's a youth, there's a kid that was bo- is born in Germany right now that in 12 years is going to be a youth crew kid and is going to want to see youth. Is he really? What? Is he really? Yes. Are you sure? Ray's going to be like 65. As long I, as I talked to Walter have- about this and he was like, I'm going to do it forever, man. Yeah, <laughs> as long as there's a flight over there. Take the money out of it. Take the money out of the equation. I'd like to see those guys play and not get paid. I'd like to see it. You're never going to do that, though. You want pay? You want to get paid? I don't give a shit. Are you kidding me? I played that show at Vitus for free. I fucking if if we do a reunion, you know. How about again, the? I meant, I meant like overall, not like one show or one thing. I'm saying like the overall thing. Like you want to make something out of it. You got to live. At right? this point, I don't give a fuck unless I'm sacrificing. Okay, you know something else. Like a lot of time and whatnot, but like. Uh, yeah, I, but at the same time, I know I'm not like if Gave Johnny Depp did a reunion, which we've talked about endlessly, and we went over to England, we could probably sell out a couple of shows. And but would we cash in? No, we'd be paying back our plane tickets, yeah, and the gas and the van, and you know, it's like it's none of that shit has changed. It, it, those bands are on a different level. A band like Judge is getting paid like fifteen grand a show. Wow, you know, it, it's like, and again, those guys are all awesome people. And it's cool, but I always say with these, especially with these youth crew bands and all this shit, that these guys are in their fucking 50s. Take the money out of the equation. Would you do it? And, and like, you know, I'm sure they wouldn't answer. Or they'd say, yeah. And I'm, okay, cool. Go play a benefit show right now. What do you want to benefit for? Take, take a flight over to wherever, you know, and play a benefit show. It's like, no, they, they can't do that. They're, they're somewhat professional, you know? So it's, uh, I don't know. It's I funny. can't believe youth crew bands are still playing. I always think my Twitter feed's messed up or I'm opening a website that's like from back in the day when I see like a show announcement. Yeah. Me too. I'm just like, this is like, yeah, is this like somebody putting an old flyer up? Is this an Onion article? Yeah. <laughs> or Hard Times now? Hard Times, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, but at the same time, again, like I do say more power to them. You know, if you can do it and people will come, uh, you know, the money's a bonus. That's great. Again, I think for certain people that the money is not a motivating factor, but if you took it away, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. You know? Like, I look at, like, uh, when Frank Turner came and opened for Mineral. Granted, he's a rich guy now, but he, you know, he did, Mineral donated $500 for his plane ticket. He was going to play for free. Like, that's cool, because he just wanted to play. Oh, he flipped out. I mean, that's like... Oh, he was so psyched. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, like, seeing that excitement at a guy at his level... You know, that's that's fucking ace, man. That's really like there's a reason why people clamor over him and and whatnot because he is the real deal. There's nothing bullshit about him. Yeah, he grew up privileged and all that other shit, but he's also an incredibly smart guy. You know, and like so you kind of forget about that real quick. It's like, and who cares what your upbringing is? It's what you are now. So you know, it's uh, so doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, totally, absolutely. You know, worked his ass off.
Washed Up Emo fans, thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening, and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also printed volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com